0: This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's
1: headlines. First Lady Jill Biden will be visiting Madison on Thursday as part of an effort to highlight screening for cancer, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It's the second time a member of the Biden family has visited Wisconsin in the past month following a visit from the president to Milwaukee in mid-August. The First Lady will be joined by Senator Baldwin, who is up for re-election next year. The two will be attending a fundraising event.
0: State Attorney General Josh Call is declining to say whether his office is investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, reports WKOW. Previously, the Wisconsin Election Commission had declined to prosecute a group of Republicans who had cast fake electoral votes in an effort to keep legal options open for contesting the 2020 election. But Call's office enforces a different set of election laws than the Election Commission, and he might still have the option to investigate the matter if he so chooses. In an interview with the TV station, Call also spoke in support of the state fully funding the Office of School Safety after its federal funding is slated to expire in 2024.
1: The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has proposed adding the salamander mussel to the endangered species list, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The two-inch-long freshwater bivalve is found in fast-moving streams across Wisconsin and is sensitive to polluted water along with dams that slow the water flow. They are also unique among mussels in that they rely on salamander gills to incubate their young. Most other mussels use fish gills. Conservation groups initially submitted the salamander mussel to the Wildlife Service for consideration as an endangered species back in 2010, but the backlog of species under review kept the service from considering the species up until now.
0: The recent removal of three handmade log benches at the Lakeview Elementary School on Madison's north side has caused a clash between parents and administrators, reports the Capital Times. The removal came as part of an assessment by a risk manager who visited the school in the spring and cited various safety concerns, including rotting logs and old wooden pallets. But the removal sparked frustration from the teacher who oversees the school's outdoor learning environment, who was not informed of the change. Some advocates for outdoor learning are expected to speak tonight at the MMSD school board meeting, which begins at 6 p.m.
1: High-profile writers Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo plan to speak on equity issues next year as part of an equity training program for the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction for administrators. Dr. Kendi, slated to speak in May of 2024, is a professor at Boston University and is perhaps best known for his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Robin D'Angelo, slated to speak in January of 2024, is a professor at the University of Washington and is author of the book, White Fragility. The appearances were announced last week and have predictably invoked conservative ire. According to the Badger Institute, the program is funded by federal grant money, topping out at just under $300,000 in one fiscal year.
0: The St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church on Madison's east side is celebrating its 121st anniversary on Sunday, reports WKOW. It's one of the oldest African American churches in Dane County and has served as a place of spiritual relief for generations. Reverend Gregory Armstrong is currently serving as the church's pastor. He says that the need for respite for Black Americans is still urgent.
1: Camera crews for Bravo's reality TV show Top Chef were seen at the Dane County Farmer's Market over the weekend, reports the Capital Times. The show announced in July that it would be shooting in Wisconsin for its most recent season. The identity of the contestants is kept somewhat secret to preserve the suspense needed in a reality competition show. But sharp-eyed Madisonians might see the crews visit local food marts, including recently a film shoot at Whole Foods.
0: For the fifteenth year, JP Hair Design Incorporated offered free haircuts to students in preparation for going back to school yesterday, reports WISC TV. The event, hosted at the Align Energy Center, also included an opportunity for students to get vaccinated in preparation for the new school year.
1: And speaking of the start of the fall semester, some MMSD students are headed back to school this Friday, with all grades beginning school by next Tuesday. And the city of Madison is reminding drivers that the start of school school means that school zones are back in effect, with 15 mile an hour speed limits. Crossing guards are asking drivers to be alert, be patient, and to obey all traffic directions with the new traffic patterns. And those were the headlines. Now on to today's top stories.
0: Today, just days before the school year officially kicks off, MMSD hosted a tour of the newly renovated Capitol High School. And after years of students attending the same school at different locations, Capitol High is now newly consolidated in a building just feet away from Hoyt Park on Madison's west side. The school's principal, Victor Chukwodebe, showcased their renovations and a few ambitious additions to their classrooms to journalists today, including WORT's own news producer, Faye Parks.
2: Over the last few months, half a dozen schools in the Madison Metropolitan School District, or MMSD, have undergone serious renovations. And while some projects are still ongoing, Capitol High School's consolidation was perhaps the most ambitious undertaking. Madison School and Community Recreation, or MSER, has used the space for the last 25 years. Now, the renovated building will provide a space for the roughly 200 alternative students who attend Capitol High, providing more specialized education and small class sizes than the city's traditional public schools. Created in 2016, Capitol High has operated out of three sites across the city— at a Westside strip mall, at Lapham Elementary on the east side, and at Marquette Elementary for pregnant and parenting students. And while the school itself boasts energy-efficient fixtures, from new windows to LED lighting to an upgraded electric system, school officials are most excited about the many ways in which they can engage their students. Capital Principal Victor Chukurebe says that the consolidation will, hopefully, foster a stronger sense of community, connection, and school spirit.
3: When we we're in three different locations, it was really difficult to get a sense of identity because some students associated with, oh, I'm Capital West Side, I'm Capital East Side, I'm Capital Parenting. Now we're all under the same umbrella and we're Capital High.
2: Chukurebe says students had a lot of input concerning new additions or resources. He walked our tour through the halls, pointing out updated science labs, a new culinary arts classroom, and even a recording studio for students interested in music production. He says that it's important for students at Capitol to have an outlet, one they can find in the new art studio.
3: Most of our kids are creative by nature, you know, and I think here they can really explore uh, with the art instructor we talked to. Uh, we share the art instructor a Memorial. And... They just talked about the freedom that they'll allow the students to have. So you, when you come in here, you can pretty much pick your adventure, whether you're working on a 2D project, a 3D project, a ceramic project, the choice is yours. So we're definitely excited about this space, and I know the students will Capital
2: it. will continue several programs established before the renovations, including an off-site after-school program for West High School students with special needs. This will be housed on the new first floor. The construction company converted what was formerly outdoor space into additional indoor space. The area also houses the teacher's lounge. In spite of all these big changes, there are still signs of Capitol's decades-old roots. They made space for an on-site daycare with a separate entrance. Young parents can continue their schooling with the support that they need.
3: Last year, we had a parenting program which was housed in Marquette. This year, again, that program will also be with us. Again, you talk about a sense of community. The students don't feel isolated. They feel like they are part of Capitol High. and We do have the electives that kind of cater to childbirth and parenting. Okay, so they have the same electives, the same um, exposure to the resources they need as they did last year, but all under the same roof.
2: The project has been in the works for roughly two years, and it hasn't been without some pushback from neighbors, who have voiced concern about parking and traffic. But right now, Capitol's teachers are looking forward to setting up their classrooms, which could happen as soon as tomorrow. Capitol High is inviting parents to visit and tour along with their children on Friday the 1st, and there will be another celebratory tour on Thursday, September 7th. As for us journalists, MMSD's Deputy Superintendent, Dr. T.J. McRae, says,
4: You ain't got to go home. <laughs> you got to get up out of here.
2: Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
1: Some recent headlines point to slowdowns in electric vehicle sales, but are they really sitting idle on dealers' lots? This year, EV prices have dropped more than other types of vehicles, according to Cox Automotive, and research from Consumer Reports points to a surge in EV enthusiasm. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
4: The auto industry has been dealing with challenges lately, such as higher interest rates. But analysts say there are nuances, while also stressing that despite some rhetoric, Sales of electric vehicles are encouraging. News headlines have surfaced about electric vehicles not moving quickly off of dealership lots. For example, industry service group Cox Automotive recently estimated that Ford had 113 days worth of inventory for its all-electric Mustang SUV model. But Ford has disputed that number. And Chris Hardo of Consumer Reports says overall, EV sales are up 50% this year over last.
5: So we're really just not seeing this slowdown that everybody is talking about when you actually look at vehicle
4: purchase data. Wisconsin has lagged behind other states in electric vehicle registrations, with data showing it ranks 35th in the nation. But the Wisconsin Policy Forum notes that registrations have increased on average by nearly 52% each year over the past decade. As for reports of high inventories, Hardo notes the estimates exclude EV-only dealers – and that their inventories are well below the industry average. Ardo acknowledges that higher interest rates might eventually put a dent in sales of all vehicles, but he says it hasn't happened yet. Customers are still snatching up cars that were hard to find when the pandemic was crippling supply chains. And he says the public remains intrigued by the EV market.
5: Our surveys to date have showed... A pretty significant chunk of the American car-buying public who are interested in buying electric vehicle are curious about buying electric vehicle.
4: It's just an open question of when a lot of these consumers will take the plunge as more EV models come on board. Harto's analysis finds that 70% of EV sales this year are from just nine models, all of which have a starting price under $45,000 when factoring in incentives. That's below the average new vehicle price. He suggests those models can be competitive sales-wise as opposed to higher-priced luxury EVs. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
0: It's now 618 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Last Wednesday, Governor Tony Evers announced the creation of a new task force aimed at analyzing the impending impact of artificial intelligence on Wisconsin's economy and workforce. For more, WORT News producer Faye Parks spoke with Missy Hughes, secretary of the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, earlier today.
2: Artificial intelligence is largely uncharted territory, particularly when it comes to law. Some states, like our neighboring Minnesota, are already writing legislation to regulate its use and impact. Governor Tony Evers created a new task force to investigate the current and future effects that AI may have on Wisconsin's economy. One member of the task force will come from the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. We have Missy Hughes on the phone, the corporation's secretary and CEO. Secretary Hughes, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Pei. Can you tell us more about this task force, uh, what it's setting out to analyze?
6: Well, the task force is really focused on the impact that A.I. could potentially have on Wisconsin's economy. And when you think about that, it could be on Wisconsin's workforce or it could be on Wisconsin's businesses and how they might take advantage of the opportunities offered by A.I.
2: Can you tell me who else is on this task force? Is it industry leaders, tech companies?
6: Well, it's a great mix of everyone who might come into contact with AI and then has the ability to advise the governor on how to create policy around it. So it includes the Department of Workforce uh, Development, the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, the university, the tech colleges, and then we're really seeking to bring in businesses, um, whether they're entrepreneurs or established large businesses that might be dealing with AI or the, you know, the different types of AI.
2: And have you already come across AI as impacting jobs in your current role? Do you have any examples of that happening?
6: Well, certainly, you know, when, we, when we're in such a tight workforce, we see businesses trying to think about what can we do to take care of the fact that we don't have enough workers. And some businesses are doing that through automation. Um, whether it's using robotics or things like that, or businesses are looking to AI to find efficiencies. And I've seen that in Wisconsin businesses. But I do want to say that, you know, when I'm talking to businesses and they're, they're struggling with their workforce issues, they want to do everything they can to keep their workers. And so where they can bring in automation and make the workplace safer and higher tech, they're jumping at that opportunity and then training their workers to be able to manage those machines and gain more efficiency.
2: Are there particular industries that you see being impacted like agriculture or healthcare?
6: Well, we already see in healthcare the opportunities for AI to really help doctors and nurses deliver much more personalized healthcare. So, whether it is using the data that we have around having treated previous patients to say what's the best way to treat the patient who's in front of me, or whether it's simply things like having a prepackaged vaccine, there's lots of different ways that we can gain efficiencies in healthcare, which will enable the doctors and nurses and other providers to spend more time with the patient and less time doing the mundane tasks. That they have to do today. We also see it in manufacturing, where I'm really seeing companies using it for inventory and for managing their supply chain. Because, you know, as your supply chain is coming from the global marketplace, being able to access that in real time and when you need it is critically important to be able to compete.
2: So, typically, task forces research issues and come up with solutions, uh, usually, but not always, in terms of legislation. Do you have any inkling of what legislation might look like in this case? Well, I think
6: there's two pieces to the governor's task force. One is thinking about the policy implications, you know, whether or not there are boundaries that need to be set around AI. uh, That's something that the task force will consider. But I think the governor's intention is really to think about how do we invest? How do we think about AI as an opportunity for the future future? make sure that our workforce is trained to be able to understand how to work with AI, make sure that our universities and our tech colleges are able to utilize research and work with businesses to really put AI into action for the benefit of Wisconsin's economy. I think overall what the governor is really aiming to do is to say, when the next budget comes, how are we going to invest in order to position Wisconsin for success?
2: Okay, so he's looking this more as an opportunity than as a threat, potentially.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you look at AI as a threat, you're closing the doors on many of the opportunities. And AI, you know, while it seems that there, there's uh, quirks to it right now and failures to it right now, we're really at an inflection point. And the governor is recognizing that this technology is here to stay and is going to keep growing. And how do we take that reality and take advantage of it?
2: I see. Okay. So our neighbor to the West, uh, Minnesota, is already working on AI legislation as well. They're looking at things like preventing deep fakes and disinformation, protecting consumers, and more reporting requirements. What to you is the most urgent AI issue?
6: You know, to me, the, the most urgent AI issue is this idea that Workers will be displaced by AI, and that there, it will close off opportunities for Wisconsinites. And that's why I think the governor's approach is really innovative and unique. And he's looking at it and saying this could really move our workforce forward. And so he wants to consider things like equity and how do we make sure that everybody has the opportunities. And really thinking about what's the you know the governor, of course, being the educator that he is. Is thinking about what are the education opportunities here? What are the training opportunities? So I really appreciate that he's coming at it and has asked the task force to come at it with an open mind.
2: Okay, and I do know there are a lot of concerns in the public around elections and disinformation. Is that something that would be in the task force's purview or is that a different issue?
6: You know, I think that the task force is, ta- is tasked with looking at all of the different issues that are going to come up, and I'm sure, you know, we'll have a parking lot full of issues, whether it's election law or disinformation. I know that because this is led by the Department of Workforce Development, again, the governor has a workforce focus um, with the special session that he's called and the real emphasis on making sure that we think about Wisconsinites and, and their opportunities to prosper. Um, so, I, you know, I think while the task force will certainly identify as many issues as we can, we're really going to be focused on the economy and the opportunities for Wisconsin.
2: Okay. So in the case that this task force has model legislation, do you think there would be bipartisan consensus? Well, it certainly would be what
6: we're aiming for. Um, You know, I think that, that anytime we can achieve bipartisan consensus in Wisconsin, we got to be driving towards that. And I think AI Given that it's a new technology, we don't, nobody needs to go into their corners. We can try and, and work this through together and really address the best ways to both protect Wisconsinites and take advantage of the opportunities.
2: Have you gotten bipartisan interest in this task force? Have you heard from both sides of the aisle?
6: Well, I'll, you know, I can just say that my board of directors is a bipartisan board and we've had conversations about AI and um, I've got board members who are really excited about the governor's task force both from both sides of the aisle. And I, you know, I think that there's definitely opportunities to work together on this.
2: Thank you again for taking the time to speak with me, Missy.
6: Thank you, Faye, thanks for being interested in this.
2: I've been speaking with Missy Hughes, the secretary and CEO at the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. She is a member of a new task force investigating the impact of artificial intelligence on Wisconsin's economy.
1: it's monday which means it's time once again to take a look ahead at what's in store this week in local government in a segment we call forward lookout on the agenda for local leaders beverage agreements and oh boy getting into budget season with us now is brenda conkle to go over what's happening
5: this week in local government we'll start with dane county and kind of a short week because of uh you know it's august That's just how it goes in August. But at 430 today, we did have the Community Development Block Grant Commission's applicant review team. So this sounds important.
7: Yep. They were meeting out in some prairie at the city hall, and they were going to review and score all the projects that they heard presentations from and determine who's going to get the funding for the next year.
5: Okay. So if you're one of those nonprofits... You probably know about it, but I'm glad we told people. All right. What about uh, personnel and finance? They also had a meeting today. Uh, looks like they're doing a lot of amending.
7: They are. They have um, Chapter 10, which is the definition of a daycare center. Um, they also have, uh, they're amending Chapter 18, which they, is about the catastrophic leave program. I'm guessing that's um, like employee benefits. And then also in Chapter 18, they're going to be looking at employees serving as the interim department heads. Been a lot of controversy about this recently. And so they are amending the ordinance. And at the end of the meeting, they're also going to have a discussion about the oversight of the department head hiring process. So might be some fireworks there tonight. You never know. Um, the most of it is just basic uh, agreements and contracts and other things that they need to do. They are looking at purchasing some land in the town of Verona in the town of Montrose for the Sugar River Wildlife Area and then they are also going to be uh, donating some getting uh, accepting some donated funds for the chainsaw chainsaw workshop for women.
5: The chainsaw workshop. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, you forgot about the beverage agreement for the Align Energy Center. They're going with Coke this year. Is that real? Coca-Cola products at the Align Energy Center.
7: Oh, okay. Well, good for them. I I am a I'm a big fan of Diet Coke.
5: <laughs> and that's pretty much all she wrote with uh, Dane County this week. So we'll move on to the city of Madison. And at 4.30 today, day, we had the Finance Committee meet at, like I said, 4.30. So that may be wrapping up right about now. But they had a, a lengthy agenda today, especially for the end of August.
7: Yeah, they're um, going to be appointing Michael Rouge as the Transit Chief Development Officer, or I should say uh, recommending to the council to do that. It's a five-year term. It's a new position over at Madison Metro um, they are giving, uh, they had lots of funding that they're doing. So $250,000 for Isthmus Wellness, that is a commercial property that um, they have a funding source for. They're also going to be uh, giving another $260,000 to Porchlight because there were some unspent funds. They're also giving $400,000 to the Bayview Foundation for their community facilities loan program. And then $130,000 um, will be going to Mass and Development Corporation for one of their housing projects. And then, oh, nope, that's the, they have $359,000 for that. And then $130,000 for a nonprofit housing program. Uh, the money is going to the Mass and Community Cooperative. So lots of funds that are going to be going. Um, and then They're accepting that money from the Edward Byrne Memorial Justice Grant for $111,000, usually um, toys for the police department is what I would call it. Um, And then the American Rescue Plan, they're going to be getting a report on how the funding for that is going. And then they're going to be talking about the capital budget briefing schedule.
5: Getting into budget season, that is for sure.
7: It is.
5: All right. And so um, a quick mention of the Sustainable Madison Committee, which met today at 4.30. And they talked about, well, they got a new, they got a presentation from the, the new city Forester, right? And any, anything else of note?
7: Yeah. um, the, the sustainability plan, they're getting a big update on that. And there's a bunch of um, attachments there that you can take a look at. And then they're also looking at greenhouse gas inventory. So they're getting an update on that.
5: The Landmarks Commission met at 5 o'clock. That is to discuss a property on Rutledge and whether they can build an accessory structure. So it looks like a shed's going up.
7: Yeah, usually a shed or a garage. Maybe a, maybe a uh, mother-in-law suite. You never know. But um, yep. 115 Rutledge Street.
5: Keeping Rutledge Street in the know. All right, let's move on to the Equal Opportunities Commission, their executive committee. They had a meeting today at 5 p.m.
7: Yeah, so they're um, pl- mostly planning for the retreat and um, planning for their upcoming um, agenda, which is when they're going to be having the retreat on September 14th. They also are looking at potentially creating a work groups around tourism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, they're also getting a body cam update, talking about the Wisconsin's, State journal editorial board reporting bias and discrimination as well as the 60th anniversary of the equal opportunities commission which was one of the first ones in the United States is coming up so that's it. that's exciting
5: yes it is and at 5:30 uh probably still in progress is the plan commission and uh wow just a just a lot of properties on their agenda tonight to for all sorts of stuff right
7: yeah they they do they have um, Probably one that's going to be really noticeable is 18 to 30 North Carroll Street, which is the historic museum um, downtown. And so they're looking to demolish a couple buildings and rebuild a five story building there. So that's probably will be of interest to folks. One thing that's of interest that is not on there was the Voight Farm. I think that was supposed to be on the agenda, but it said that they were going to postpone it um, indefinitely due to the staff. So I don't really know. They didn't they didn't have a date that I would say, maybe not indefinitely. They were just didn't have a date when they thought it might come up again. And then there's some a project on campus, Bernard Court and Clymer Place. And that it's got like four or five different agenda items on on the Plan Commission agenda. There's also some projects at Lean Road on Regent Street as well as Cottage Grove Road, Park Street, Whitney Way, Hayes Road, and Rutledge Street again.
5: Yep, that Rutledge Street one, it's not a shed, it's not a granny flat, it's a greenhouse.
7: Oh, and that has to go to Plan Commission. It went to Landmarks because it's in the Landmark District. It's got to go to Plan Commission because it's on a lakefront
5: lot. That's right. See, that's, we're, we're teaching people stuff. All right, and if you <laughs> want to know more about what's going on with those uh, proposed developments and projects, you can that's all on forwardlookout.com. right, let's all let's skip now to the Mass and Arts Commission at 5:30 on Wednesday they have a virtual meeting and they'll be reviewing some grants.
7: Yeah, it is apparently grant time and and lots of money uh, going out the door. Um this is their annual grant so they're looking at the guidelines and they're going to decide if they should use the, the Wisconsin arts board formula for future grant cycles. They'll be looking at their scoring rubric and then they will be looking at like should it be a hundred point scale or something, you know. So it might be a little bit of a boring uh, meeting for some, but for the for the people who get the money, it's going to be really super important. Um, they'll be looking at what they are going to wait and give more points to and things like that. Um, they're also then going to be looking at the Blink Grant proposal, Greater Madison Music City. They're reviewing the Overture contract as well as um, looking at putting some art in the Madison Municipal Building. And then public art conservation, they will be talking about that Annie Stewart Memorial Fountain.
5: One of the oldest pieces of public art in the city, and it's in bad shape. Well, Brenda, let's just leave it right there. There is a meeting of the Mass and Metropolitan Sewerage District Commission at 8 a.m. on Thursday, but we're going to leave that as a cliffhanger. You got to go to forwardlookout.com to find out what the sewerage district's up to.
7: Ooh, I bet you'll get lots of hits for that.
5: <laughs> Brenda Conkle, thank you for walking us through this week in local
0: government. You're welcome. Tomorrow, August 29th, is the anniversary of the killing of Ruben Salazar, the preeminent Chicano journalist and activist of his day. Salazar was killed by an L.A. County sheriff's deputy during a police riot at the National Chicano Moratorium Against the Vietnam War in 1970. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story.
1: For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez Who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters Up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered Who struggle brave and long For the union men and women Standing up and standing strong
8: Tomorrow, August 29th, is the anniversary of the killing of Ruben Salazar, the preeminent Chicano journalist-activist of his day by a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy during a police riot that broke up the anti-war National Chicano Moratorium in 1970. Salazar was born in Juarez, Mexico on March 28, 1928. The next year, his parents, Luz and Salvador Salazar, crossed the Rio Grande and settled in El Paso. After high school graduation and a stint in the army, he earned a bachelor's degree in journalism and got a job at the El Paso Herald Post. He was the paper's first Latinx reporter. Within days, he got himself arrested on a phony drinking charge so that he could write an exposé on conditions in the local jail. For another story, he posed as a drug addict and described how easy it was. To get heroin in the barrio. In 1959, he got a job with more influence and a larger audience at the Los Angeles Times, where he was again the only Latinx reporter. He worked hard and became a foreign correspondent. He covered the 1965 U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic, the war in Vietnam, and an infamous Mexican army massacre of hundreds of students, protesters, in Mexico City in 1968. Soon after that, Salazar was called back home to cover the growing social upheaval in the barrios of Southern California. The paper had still not hired any more Latinx reporters. This return had to feel like a career come down, since the reporter hierarchy then was local-national. International. Salazar surprised everyone around him by resigning from the Los Angeles Times and taking a job as news director at KMEX, a little-known Spanish-language television station, where he instituted an aggressive style of advocacy journalism, unknown on Spanish-language TV then, according to the book by Juan Gonzalez that covers Salazar News for All the People, The Epic Story of Race in the American Media, with Joseph Torres. Salazar declared, the media's obligation is to rock the boat. His station produced a scathing report on police brutality in the Latinx community, angering police and city officials. Salazar also had a weekly op-ed in the Los Angeles Times airing his community's issues. He helped form and became the leader of the Chicano Media Council in early 1970, where he issued a stirring plea to the nation's media executives to pay more attention to the possible explosion in the barrio. We ask you almost beg you to help us inform this nation about the tragic plight of eight million invisible Chicanos, whose lives often parallel those of black people. There is much bitterness in our Mexican-American community, gentlemen, an ever-increasing bitterness against school systems that psychologically mutilate the Chicano child, against certain police who habitually harass our brown brothers, against local and federal governments that apparently only respond to violence. He hoped that reason would prevail, but concluded, in all candor, I can't say I'm entirely hopeful. It may be too late to forestall the violence of a long, festering frustration, but we should try." Tragically, his warning was prophetic. A few weeks later, on August 29, 1970, Salazar left the KMEX offices to cover an anti-war protest. The National Chicano Moratorium was scheduled for Laguna Park in East LA. More than 25,000 young people gathered, making it the largest Latinx street protest in the country's history up to that time. It began as a festive and peaceful demonstration of Latinx pride, but soon turned into a violent, and bloody confrontation. Following a minor disturbance a block away from the rally, police decided to end the mass event. They arrested one of the key speakers, Corky Gonzalez, head of the Colorado La Raza Unida party, before he could reach the podium. Police then swept into the crowd with clubs and tear gas. The crowd resisted, and a riot ensued in which more than 40 cops were injured and 25 police cars destroyed. Trying to escape the chaos, Salazar and his crew took refuge in a local bar, the Silver Dollar Cafe. Minutes after they entered the bar, police surrounded the building. They claimed later they had a report that a man had entered the bar with a gun. Without warning, a sheriff's deputy fired a metal tear gas canister, striking Salazar in the head, killing him instantly. It was a 10-inch wall-piercing tear gas round from a tear gas gun, intended for a barricade situation. Not the usual crowd-control device that produces a much larger cloud of gas and is intended to break up crowds. Two other people died in the riot. Lynn Ward and Angel Diaz. 400 were arrested. Gonzalez considered that day the Latinx equivalent of Kent State to White America or Bloody Sunday in Selma for the civil rights movement. Salazar's killing also set back the Latinx efforts for national media reform. There was no real investigation at the time, not even by the Los Angeles Times. In 1994, LA Times reporter Robert Lopez launched an investigation eventually obtaining FBI files, LA police chief files, and finally a after political pressure, adverse publicity, and a threatened lawsuit, Sheriff's Department records. Tragically, there was no conclusive proof, but Lopez concluded the deputy didn't care who was in the bar when he discharged his tear gas gun. The event wouldn't have happened in the same way in a white neighborhood. No one was ever held accountable. For the Passes and Past, i Harry Richardson. <laughs>
1: The time right now is 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: More than 20 artists have created installations for a land art exhibit in the National Path Sanctuary, a green cemetery just outside Madison in Verona. WORT contributor Gil Halstead has more.
9: Have you ever been to an art exhibit in a cemetery? An art exhibit where all the art installations are made from biodegradable materials, most of them found and collected in the cemetery itself? I can testify that it's an inspiring, thought-provoking experience, and it's a unique challenge for the artists who participate. I'm Gil Halstead, chair of the board of directors at the Farley Center for Peace, Justice, and Sustainability. The Earth Connections Land Art exhibit at the Farley Center on Spring Rose Road in Verona is taking place now through October 31st. The center is home to the Natural Path Sanctuary, a green cemetery on a wooded hillside This fall, for the third time in the last six years, local artists are creating art installations along the paths that wind through the cemetery. John Steinus is one of them. He's building his piece beside the spot where he will eventually be buried.
10: Where I place my artwork is where my burial site will be generally. So I've always had my pieces in this little open bit of land. John
9: Steinus is a former nurse who lectures regularly at Edgewood College on trauma and resiliency and the role of nature in healing.
10: And that applies not only to humans, but it applies to the whole planet, to all of us. We are, you know, that whole concept, we are one, so clearly now evident with what's happening, you know, climate-wise. Um, so the, 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 the integration with nature, and nature has always been my number one healer for myself. So... Going to a place where there are trees is really opens things up for me in a way that is that, 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 that takes my fear away in many ways.
9: John says his piece in this year's Earth Connections exhibit represents a family group gathered perhaps for a funeral. He gathered some of their clothing earlier this year.
10: These things evolve as you make them. So I trim some hazelnut branches. Last fall, and I knew, oh, I'm going to save these because they would make a lovely cloak for an art piece at the Farley Center. So looking ahead, and and then in the process of actually constructing something that's going to stand on its own, well, those were ten feet tall, and I don't have a, you know, I have this supported with a wooden ladder. It, the dynamics of doing a land exhibit like this forces you to adjust. So it still has that concept for me. I'm not sure if that comes through as much for the viewer. Um, but then, then the figures are the, – the concept was to represent a family gathering or, or a group gathering, so a, multiple kind of looking out. But those faces are not necessarily – they're not intended to be threatening. One may look a little scary. Um, they're more questioning and, 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 and unposed, if you will, about just observation.
9: And so they are, in a sense, just this group is just standing there right near where you're going to be buried when your life (laughs) is finished, right? (laughs) That's right. How does that affect the way that uh, uh, you decide to make this, uh, the fact that this is where you're going to end up, (laughs) and here's this art piece that uh, people are going to come and see among all the other art pieces that are there. Do you have expectations of... How the audience for your piece are going to receive it?
10: Uh, I I try to not, frankly, because it it, it is intended to be open enough in terms of interpretation that people will walk away with... they're going to they put something into it in their process of observing. Clearly, I'm putting something there for them to reflect upon, but I, I'm in not I am totally not in control when something like this goes up.
9: John Steinus's installation at the Earth Connections Land Art exhibit is up now beside his future final resting place. Steinus is one of more than twenty artists who are participating in this year's exhibit. The public is invited to tour the art exhibit In the Sanctuary at 2299 Spring Rose Road any between dawn and dusk through October 31st. There will be a reception on September 9th, beginning at 1 p.m., when many of the artists will be there to talk about their installations. I'm Gil
1: Halstead. Today on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson watches the documentary Cooked, Survival by Zip Code, which explains why at least 739 people died in the Chicago heatwave of 1995. Harry says, with last week's near-record heatwave, Cooked seems more relevant than ever. And on the lighter side, Harry takes a look at Wolfwalkers, a beautiful hand-drawn animated movie based on an old Irish legend with an anti-colonialist message. Do you think they're addressing
4: that? Do I think the city is addressing the extreme poverty in communities of color in Chicago? Is that what you're asking me? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be ridiculous.
8: That was clipped from the trailer for the documentary Cooked, Survival by Zip Code, directed by Judith Helford. Halford is a veteran filmmaker, educator, and documentary field builder. Cooked came out in 2019, but with last week's deadly heat wave in 22 states, affecting 130 million people, and seems more relevant than ever. The film dissects Chicago's 1995 five-day July heat wave. One of Helford's most effective talking heads is the Chicago sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, who wrote the book Heat Wave, about the disaster. He described the situation and Helford showed the relevant footage. Meteorologists fried eggs on the sidewalk. News reporters were telling stories of air conditioners selling out in appliance stores. The mayor, the health commissioner, the fire commissioner, they were all on vacation and stayed there, and no one issued an alert. The temperature was 106 degrees with a heat index of 126. The power went out for a couple of days. Water was out in some neighborhoods. Thousands of people were sick and going to emergency rooms. About half of the city's hospitals closed. At least 739 people died. The city's chief epidemiologist, Dr. Stephen Whitman, explain the situation using city maps, and as map after map showed the poorest areas of the city, where many of its people of color live, that is where people died. People died because they were vulnerable, they were socially isolated, had pre-existing conditions, were elderly or disabled, they were poor, they lived in dangerous neighborhoods where one elderly woman had her windows nailed shut. Some people didn't have fans, let alone air conditioners. Those that had air conditioners were often afraid to run them, worrying about their next electric bill. Dr. Whitman explained that the life expectancy in the Loop, a white area, is 81%, but in Chicago's black neighborhoods, it is 65 If black people in Chicago had the same death rate as white people, 3,200 fewer people would have died. Whitman made this point in a public talk and followed up with, What major event had 3,200 fatalities? Someone in the audience responded 911, and he said, "That's right." And just think of how much was spent after that disaster. Sadly, Dr. Whitman, who became a public health advocate to eliminate the city's health disparities, died in 2015. Others in the documentary, like Dr. Linda Ray Murray, recently retired chief medical officer for Cook County, pointed out man-made events like the disinvestment and deindustrialization of the city, racism. And redlining were reasons this horror happened. Today, Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas hosted a virtual extreme heat summit. The Biden administration has recognized extreme heat as the top weather-related cause of death in the U.S. and is offering 2.3 billion in grants to states and cities to prepare for future heat waves. Part of the guidelines call for identifying vulnerable neighborhoods. This Wednesday, several Chicago-area activist groups, like the People's Response Network, will hold a virtual showing of "Cooked" with an informative discussion. Find the Zoom registration link on cfl.org. Up next, a beautiful animated film evoking an old Irish legend. I met a girl in the forest who has magic powers.
5: <laughs> you can come out now. We can smell you. You stink.
8: That was clip from the trailer for Wolfwalkers, directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. Moore directed The Secret of Kells and The Song of the Sea. This movie adopts much of the style of his earlier films, with its lush, swirling colors, Celtic runes, and other symbols, as well as glorious forests in an oppressive, fortified town. This story is set in Southeast Ireland, Kilkenny, in 1650, the year after Lord Oliver Cromwell starred the brutal reconquest of Ireland. This film is a clear Allegory for that time. The story focuses on a couple of English newcomers, a young girl, Robin Goodfellow, voiced by Honor Nisi, and her father, Bill Sean Penn. Robin wants to be a great hunter like her dad, but she is stuck in the walled village. She escapes to help her father, but gets more than she bargained for. She meets the equally young and energetic feral child. Meb, Eva Whitaker, with a great Irish accent, out in the mysterious woods. Meb is a wolf-walker. She becomes a wolf when she falls asleep in her human form. She leads the pack in both her incarnations. The two become fast friends, and Robin tries to convince her father that he should stop hunting the wolves. But she is forced into labor with the rest of the women and children as a scullery maid. The cruel Lord Protector, Simon McBurney, pushes the story to its ultimate confrontation. A beautiful, entrancing movie. I highly recommend it. It's showing on Apple+. Plus For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Gil Halstead. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT.
1: That's Rachel, and I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a good night.
2: I do yes. not know how to pronounce your last name.
3: Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's pronounced Chukudabay.